I want to start today by telling you a little of myself from even before we moved to East Kilbride and joined Clement. At first we lived in Deniston, which I don't remember because we moved when I was two and a half to a flat in Pollock Shields. My mum and dad, who were former members of Clement, were heavily involved with our local church, Albert Drive. Helps if I go the right way. That's Albert Drive Church. It's now St. Albert the Great's Roman Catholic Chapel because we sold it to them when there was a union. But we were involved with Albert Drive at church every Sunday in the Women's Guild and Boys' Brigade. The Sunday school, there were Sunday school teachers in a relatively small congregation of perhaps 80. So everybody chipped in and did their bit. I was there for a church from as early as I can remember. Beginner Sunday school, junior Sunday school, so on. In the BB, rang the bell to call the worshippers to church each Sunday. Right up that tower. Health and safety wouldn't have liked it. <laughs> the wood was rotten. And there were pigeon droppings all over the floor. I was in the church choir. I knew my Bible. I had a faith from a very early age. I joined the church when I was 16 or so. An unshakable faith. I believed everything in the Bible and questioned nothing about it. So, a wee straw poll. How many can relate to that? How many people were brought up in a Christian home, went to church from an early age and joined the church in due course? Hands up. I thought so a lot. And how many people came from a conversion, shall we say, not necessarily of Damascus Road proportions, but of a similar vein. How many would say they had a conversion to join the church? Typical of the Church of Scotland, I think. So, we moved to this exciting new Church of Scotland extension charge in East Kilbride called Clement. And I joined the BB, the, y the Sunday School, the YF, and the Seaside Mission Team. And I had a firm belief that the important thing about being a Christian was telling others about Jesus. But hang on, that's where the problem comes. If you've always had a faith and never questioned it, how do you respond to other people asking questions you've never thought of before or asked yourself? We're not trained in how to respond to doubters or questioners. Like at university, I went along to a Bible study with some friends and someone asked, what happens to babies who die very young? before they can even understand the gospel and cannot therefore come to a faith of their own? Or what about people in other lands who've never heard the gospel? Are they condemned to hell as they don't believe in Jesus? And no, I'm not answering that, those questions today. That's for another day and place. But this is where I find our focus group so helpful. Meeting with other Christians with a different take on belief and faith from my own experience. And I'm grateful to the members of the focus group I'm in for some of the thoughts that went into this sermon. Just now, we're look at, taking a short look at key passages in Mark's Gospel. As John Collins said a couple of weeks ago, the narrative goes like an express train for the first eight chapters. And often Mark's brevity leaves some fascinating unanswered questions. Like in chapter eight, when Jesus talked about his death 
And Simon rebuked Jesus. But what did he say? Ian Howell gave our focus group a lovely Glaswegian rendering, roughly like this, when he suggested, didn't he be daft? You can't be serious. Going to Jerusalem to be killed? Get a grip, man. And our passage today again throws up loads of questions, partly because of the brevity. So to help us think about it a bit, I'm going to suggest we look at some of the things you might not know or have thought of before. All, or at most, least most of us, know the story of Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples before his arrest. It happens after the Last Supper, so in a way our service is upside down because we're having communion after this rather than before it. But do we know the story too well without thinking about it? We all know it as the Garden of Gethsemane, but the Gospels merely play, say a place called Gethsemane. John's Gospel says Jesus was arrested in a garden, which is where the assumption that it was a garden comes from. But what did the Jews mean by a garden? We think of a nice place with lots of greenery, with flowers, shrubs. They simply meant a place where there was plants, shrubs, trees, surrounded by a wall, a walled enclosure. There's a hint in the name Gethsemane. Anybody know what Gethsemane means? It's an oil press. In other words, it's a place where you pressed the olive. And therefore, the Garden of Gethsemane was probably an olive grove. So therefore, it would be quite an ideal for prayer. Not necessarily. This was the Passover, and pilgrims often sheltered in the olive groves for the night. So it might not have been as empty or peaceful as we instinctively suppose. Jesus prayed, verse 36, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. Abba, what we're often told is a child's affectionate name for their father, like Daddy, although it implies more than this alone. It could be just as true of adults. It simply implies a close personal relationship. And what about this cup? What was that? In the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor for God's wrath and judgment. Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25 talk of the cup of the Lord's wrath or of God's wrath. The cup was the chalice of death and God's wrath taken from the Father's hand in fulfillment of Jesus' mission. Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. How do we know what he prayed? The disciples were asleep. Was there anybody else there? There are three possible explanations that you can think about. First one is that someone else was there. There's a funny story in verse 31 about the young man who runs away naked when the guards try to seize him. Why is this story part of the narrative? It seems completely irrelevant, which is perhaps where people somehow, sometimes think 
that actually the young man was John Mark, and maybe he had followed Jesus and heard him praying. Second possibility, the disciples actually heard the prayer before they fell asleep. And there's a third possibility, another big gap in what we know. Between the resurrection and Jesus' ascension into heaven, he taught the disciples over 40 days. What did he say? What did they talk about? Did he have a conversation with Peter about what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? And why did he go to Gethsemane anyway? Was it for peace to pray? Or was it also because he knew it was relatively deserted and Judas could betray him there as he knew that Jesus liked to go there and without crowds to cause a riot? And why was Jesus in anguish in prayer? He obviously knew what was coming, what he had to go through for the Father. Why else go to Jerusalem in the first place? One of the other things our focus group had picked up on from Mark's Gospel was that Jesus was fully human, yet fully divine. Human with the same needs as us, needing a drink from the woman at the well in Samaria, eating at the feast in Cana when he turned the water into wine, eating supper with the disciples, asking for some fish from the disciples after the resurrection, tired out sleeping on the boat on the Sea of Galilee when the storm blew up, yet fully divine. As Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 6 to 8, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But perhaps this is the point at which Jesus realised that the crucifixion and all that went with it was possibly more than he could bear as a man. It was now imminent. Events had been set in motion. This was not going to be pleasant or even bearable. If he was to go through with it, it was going to be costly, painful, excruciating. He would have seen men crucified before and know how unbearable it was. And it wasn't just the physical torture, there was the mental torture as well. He was going to be betrayed by a friend, one of his own, abandoned by the very disciples who had even sworn to be true to him, left his supper completely alone, and at the end cut off from the Father, abandoned to his fate. No one to comfort him, even inwardly. And the disciples couldn't even give him comfort and support in prayer beforehand. They fell asleep. No friends, no prayer support, no comfort. We make a big thing about Peter's denial of Jesus before the cock crowed three times. And then Jesus later after the resurrection asking Peter to feed his sheep three times. But did you notice that the disciples, including Peter, fell asleep here three times as well? They'd failed him already. And Jesus doesn't address Peter as Peter, but he goes back to calling him Simon. He's failed already. 
We might find the betrayal of Jesus odd with Judas kissing him, but that was the accepted greeting of a disciple to his master or teacher. But the choice of words in Jesus' arrest speaks volumes as well. Jesus said in verse 48, Am I leading a rebellion? But it was in fact more, Am I leading a revolution? Which it was. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone, not the disciples. They didn't merit that description in their abandoning Jesus. And the crowd there to stop Jesus didn't stop them. They were allowed to, the crowd there to arrest Jesus didn't stop them. They were allowed to go. Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled, facing the greatest possible degree of horror and suffering. Anything but this, he might have said. But the prayer in Gethsemane was the big moment in the journey to the cross when Jesus overcame his human thoughts and fears and submitted to his Father's will. There was no other way or hodos, as Gordon McCracken said last week. We read earlier in the Gospel that Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem and set out on his fateful journey there. Here he turns his face to the cross and accepts that it's his Father's will that must prevail. We talk about Jesus' victory on the cross, his victory over death at the resurrection, but the first victory was here in Gethsemane when he submitted to his Father's will and set his feet on the path to the cross. At the start of our journey through Mark's Gospel, Jesus announces, the kingdom of God has come near. Here we understand more what it will take to bring in that kingdom. The only way was by the cross. Can you imagine how the disciples would have reacted if he'd told them that from the beginning? Three times, three again, he told them he was going to Jerusalem to die, but they still hadn't got it. Bringing in God's kingdom meant dying on the cross for the sins of the world. The cross and the kingdom were inseparable. The cross and the kingdom are held together in Christ. Together they express the way of Jesus in the world. For the kingdom of God is the goal of God's purposes. When humanity and all creation will flourish with God in all the fullness. The cross is the way by which the kingdom of God comes. But what of us? This passage invites us to stop and ponder once more where we belong. Are we like the disciples, full of bluster one minute, asleep the next, confused shame the next? Are we ready to betray Jesus if it suits our other plans or if he fails to live up to our expectations? Or are we prepared to keep watch with him in the garden, sharing his anguished prayer? We're not called to repeat his unique moment of suffering. He went through that alone on behalf of us all. But as Christian writers from the very beginning have seen, it is part of normal Christian experience that we too should be prepared to agonise in prayer as we await our own complete redemption and that of all creation. The church is called to live in the middle of this great scene. Surrounded by confusion, 
false loyalty, direct attack, and traitor's kisses. Those who name the name of Jesus must stay in the garden with him until the Father's will is done. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord,